Welcome to the Gear Garage Live Show. This weekly YouTube show covers whitewater rafting, river safety, oh God, I lost my paddle. gear, and anything else Zach feels like rambling on about. Well, hello, everybody. We have a big show today. A lot of questions to answer and some things I'm excited to talk about. So we're going to jump right into it. I'm going to try to keep this under 45 minutes today. We'll see how that goes. And I have an agenda. I'm going to answer questions first. People have asked questions of the show, and I try to get to those at the beginning so they can just listen to the answers and be done. And then I want to share some numbers having to do with the Middle Fork uh, Permit Lottery and I'll talk about some notes I took in a meeting about the Middle Fork of the Salmon this summer. So if you care about the Middle Fork, uh, we'll get that the second half of the question, like the second half of the show, not the second half of the question. If you do have questions beyond these questions, put them in the comments. I'll do my best to get to them while we're going. So with that, let's get started with the first question. First one is, hey, Zach, do people ever raft, kayak the Malheur River? Is listed as wild and scenic, so it must be on your list. P.S. Your show has got to be okay. Super nice comment. Thank you for the P.S. So uh, I, the Malheur isn't commonly kayaked or rafted. I think it's been done. I don't know who's done it. It has to have been done. And there's two different sections. So when he's talking about the uh, my list, I'm trying to paddle all of Oregon's wild and scenic rivers. And when I started that, there were 58 of them. There's more wild and scenic rivers in Oregon than any other state. You know, in Colorado, there's one. In Idaho, I think there's 13. In Washington, there's like 13. California, there's probably like, I don't know, I'm just guessing like 15, 18. In, in Oregon, we now have 68. And I think I've been to 50 of them. And the Malheur is one. And the North Fork of the Malheur is another one. Here, I'll open up. Uh, let's see. Let's share the website. So I'll open up the map really quick. And so I, I keep track of all the rivers I'm, I've done on this website, OregonWildAndScenic.com. This is a website we came that just keeps track of them all. This map, is it showing for everybody? Yeah, this map is a map of the 58 rivers. Uh, this is a project we started for the 50th anniversary of the Wild and Scenic Rivers Act. And the most recent one I did, they're all listed here. The most recent one I did, number 50, is the John North Fork of the John Day. And uh, for every one of them, I make a page just to like help myself, force myself to learn about the river more, not just paddle it, but like do some research, learn about the managing agency, learn about the outstandingly remarkable values of each river, read the management plans. And I, I sometimes, I always share some short story from the trip that we did. And sometimes other friends who have done the river share a story. Um, anyway, so this is the most recent one I've done. And on this list, if we look, where is it? Oh, it's under Eastern Oregon Desert. There's Mall Here River and Mall Here River. Hopefully, I'm pronouncing this right. I think it's Mount Here, Mal Here River and Mal Here River North Fork. There are two that I haven't been to yet, and they're in. I believe it's the Blue Mountains. They're they're in Eastern Central Oregon. Let's Google Mount Here River and see what comes up. It looks beautiful up there. Um, Let's see, here's here's a Wikipedia page. And I mean, look at that photo. It looks awesome. And it's just, there's no gauge on it. And let's see, yeah, it rises from the southern Blue Mountains, south of Strawberry Mountains. And then it flows, I think it flows into the snake. Yeah, it actually flows all the way to the snake. 
but the Malheur and the Norfolk Malheur are up in the mountains, the sections that are wild and scenic. And let's see if we can find the map too. There's a map somewhere. And here's North Fork Malheur. So this is the Wild and Scenic page. This is the segment that is Wild and Scenic right here. And so if you look at the map, uh, hopefully that gives you some context. The Oregon border isn't there. But it looks really cool. And it, it's within the National Forest. Uh, it's the section looks like that's it within the National Forest. And there's multiple sections to do. I've, I've searched through this on Google Maps. It looks interesting. Uh, just the challenges are it's kind of the middle of nowhere. So, you know, for me to get, I mean, all of these wild scenic rivers are, are a trek. This one's a big trek because you have to go to Burns and then north. It's kind of out there. And there's no flow gauge. And so, you know, if I'm going to leave Hood River to do it, I'll have no, I was just a guess what the flow is. It could be too high. It could be too low. The roads could be closed. And so it just hasn't been one I've gotten to yet. but it's definitely on the list. So to answer your question, it's not commonly done. A few other people I've talked to have thought about it and haven't done it yet. Uh, it's They've probably been done before by somebody because people love to do first ascents, but I have no information on anybody ever having done them. But man, you're right. It's on my list. It's on my radar. Maybe this spring I'll get to it. You know, as the list of rivers I have to do get shorter, I put more energy. Like last year, North Fork John Day, that's a three-day trip. It's really hard to find the flow. You know, that one was a hard one to do. You know, so we did that one last year. But as the list gets smaller, it'll be easier to do some of these. Uh, let's see. Another question came in right here. Any red flags for attending Boatsmith, including novice paddlers in the water? Uh, I don't know. Um, I, red flags. So things I would think about uh, are... You know, there there is, you know, I get in trouble for saying this. People get mad at me. But there's there's a good amount of carnage on Boatsmith. I don't think this, like, people are just boating these hard things and getting it over their heads a little bit. And, I mean, you look at all the videos that come back. There's a lot of flips, a lot of swims, uh, more than any other festival. And the gorges, the, the, the Oregon Hall Gorge and the South Fork Gorge, are pretty hard class four. They're no joke. And people almost always get in over their heads and going into them because they go into a little too casually. So I would say like, and I think, I think from what I've heard, I haven't been to boat. I've been to the Smith river personally 30 times to pad. Like I go there a lot. I love paddling there. Um, I know the rivers really well. Um, I usually go to the tight knit group and we're looking out for each other and, and running rapid setting safety. It just sort of seems like people are bombing down and there's not a safety culture. So um, I would say that's one thing the novices or novice paddlers are fine on the water just as long as they keep to the the ability of water that matches their abilities and don't get talked into getting over their heads uh for sure um i think the other the other red flag for me is it's an incredibly unpredictable place like it sounds super dreamy to go paddle the smith at perfect flows when the sun's out it's either going to be super high or super low or maybe just right but it could be raining. It could be snowing. Um, just know that you're, it's not like you're going to Clackfest where it's probably going to be kind of good weather and decent flows. Uh, it's it's wildly unpredictable in February. And so um, I would go for the camaraderie, for meeting people, for the celebration. Go for all that. For the boating, 
I would I would wait if I'm going just for the boating. I would wait to see what the flows are doing and make sure they're in like a, a range to make it worth the drive because it's really far for almost everybody. So uh, I would say um, that yeah, I would say just like general safety carnage is a red flag, and just making sure that the when you go that it's good conditions for boating if that's what you want to do. Um, and I and I never been so I don't like I don't have any of the other. Uh, I don't. I don't even know exactly what goes on there, but those are things for sure to think about. Is there a certain CFS that the Rogue River hiking trail is no longer passable? There probably is. I don't know what that CFS is. Um, I mean, I ran it at thirty-five thousand once, and the trail was definitely passable. Um, I, you know, the river gets up to a hundred every couple of years, and you would think the trail would wash out if a hundred thousand was that level so my guess is it's probably 150 maybe just from like that's just my guess but i i have no idea all right next question uh can sawyer ores make an aluminum dowel or extension to join two ores together to make a rescue pole and attach an nrs or clip to one end easy to carry in a pin kit or an ore raft and quick to put together we use a similar pole on a recovery effort in on Town Creek in Alabama. So can Sawyer ores make an aluminum dowel? That seems like a question for Sawyer ores. So uh, let's see. First, I would probably let's go to some Google Sawyer ores and let's see. Go to the website. I bet they have a con oh there we go. Con right top contact Sawyer. So. I would call them or email them. There's emails here. There's phone numbers. I would call or email them and ask them if they can can make it. That they're probably the right people to ask. Uh, but to join two ores together, make a rescue pole and attach it. What's an NRS or clip? I've never even heard of an what's an NRS or clip? NRS or clip. Or clip. There's pins and clips, but I don't know what an NRS or clip is. Maybe it's from pins and clips maybe it maybe it is like one of these things uh hmm, interesting uh yeah i think the bigger question is should or should you connect two ores to make a rescue pole uh it sounds like a very specialized rescue technique i've never heard of any i've you're, this is the first time i've ever heard of being used i don't think i've ever seen this taught in a class i don't think i've ever personally can think of it i can think of one time where we had a boat surfing in a hole where it would have been kind of nice maybe to like attach a rope to that boat somehow. Maybe I probably wouldn't work though for my case. I just don't, I don't think this is a really good rescue technique. And I, I would question when you did your rescue uh, in Alabama, were you rescuing gear, which I would call an equipment recovery, or did you actually rescue a person? Did, did this, aluminum dowel save a person which i'm going to call a rescue or is this just to retrieve some gear that someone went wrong and if it's if, it, if you see it as like a gear retrieval thing i'm i i'm gonna question it if you actually save somebody i'm gonna i want to hear more i'm like oh, okay let's let's hear more um so yeah hopefully i answered that question i guess the answer is um call sawyer they can probably tell you whether or not they can do something 
I'd love to hear more about what an NRS or clip is. I guess it's a clip for pins and clips. And I would question this as a rescue technique. Now I'm not saying it's I'm not saying it's hundred percent wrong. I'm just I don't it doesn't seem viable to me. All right. Next question. Food storage. How do you best suggest food be stored on a multi-day wrap trip? I don't have any aluminum dry box in my frame. Ammo cans, NRS plastic dry boxes, boxes, something else. So um man, it's a hard question to answer. Dry boxes are sweet. And by the way, very few dry boxes are actually dry. Like they're, if you flip bad, they're not, it's pretty rare for these things to actually be dry. So, but we call them dry boxes because that's what we call them. I, I could call them aluminum food boxes that keep stuff semi-dry. Uh, ammo cans. Yeah. If you have a place to put them, ammo cans are sweet. Those big, I think they're 20 mils. The big ones, those are classic. The NRS plastic dry boxes are sweet. Again, NRS makes like, let's see, NRS, NRS makes like, I think it's like eight things that are good. Dry. Um, and this is one of the eight things they make that are good. Here we go. There's two sizes too. These boxes, and again, they're not actually dry. They say camping dry box, but, oh wait, sorry, I opened up. It always opens up thing in the wrong page. Let me open it up here. There we go. So they say dry. They shouldn't say dry. Like they're not like, I want to see them put their like valuables in this and put it underwater and prove to me that it's dry. It's, it's, it keeps splashes from getting in. If it's submerged for an amount of time, it, it's going to probably get wet. Um, and if it's upside down submerged, it's all bets are off, but it doesn't have to be totally dry. If you submerge your food and you know, like that's, that's a bummer. You really messed up. If you, if you, if you flipped, like, eh, that's, if you have bread in there, like you, you're not eating bread. You're going to eat the canned food that was in there and like tasty bites and I don't know, whatever else you had in there. So there's two sizes. Uh, these things are really well designed. They have tons of tie down straps. They're super simple. They're light, except that they're not dry. These are awesome. I'm a huge fan of these. So I would say yes on the NRS, the NRS plastic dry boxes. And just dry bags, honestly. Like we back when I started boating and I, you know, was living out of my car, we didn't have I've never before I was an outfitter owned aluminum dry boxes or anything. We just shove food in dry bags. And you know, things like bread got squished sometimes. We just or we were trying to be careful, but it would get squished. And so dry bags are good. Again, not all dry bags are dry. So if you are getting if you're using some like NRS dry bag, it's probably not dry. If you're using a watershed or I would say even, I would just say what, if you, if it's like bread, use a watershed, but if it's like canned food, um, I use an NRS dry box. And then of course the aluminum dry boxes are sweet. Like they're, you know, everybody uses them for a reason. They're just easy and they're sweet and they're big. So, um, Chad Heideke, every NRS box I've seen has a gap in the top gasket of half an inch or so. Why? Oh, I just think it's because quality is not NRS's number one priority. Am I saying that right? I would, I may phrase that quality. I would say quality control is not their top priority. They, it, I don't think that gasket should be there. That, that gap should be there. It's just, they're just slapping down gasket and selling these things. But even with the gap, I mean, these things are sweet. I, I'm even if the gasket went all the way around, it still isn't a dry box. Like it's the water's going to get in. 
that strap on top doesn't hold the lid down that well. Like just accept if you put bread in this and you flip, you're going to have soggy bread. But this, this dry box, and when I say this dry box, this dry box that Chad's talking about that has the gap in the, in the gasket. Again, this is great for all those things, you know, like chips, like before you open the bag of chips, they're not going to get wet. So, you know, just put things in here. Like if you're worried about flipping, if you're doing like, if you either, if you're not a very good boater and you flip a lot or you're doing class five and flipping is a possibility or class four, even, you know, just rethink your food a little bit. But if you're a really good boater and you're doing class three and you're probably not going to flip or wrap, you know, you're, this is fine for all your food. So, yeah, we use a bucket. Oh, that's a good idea. Oh, this is sweet. So. Yeah, Craig, great suggestion. Um, it's called they're called gamma seal lids. That I wish I had thought of this. These lids, get a five-gallon bucket. This is probably the cheapest, best thing. Get a five-gallon bucket. And here's a photo of it right here. This black one. Um, but you basically get a five-gallon bucket, and these lids just basically clamp on, and then you you twist the thing down. And this is more waterproof than the NRS boxes for sure, but it's still not waterproof. And so I actually, we use these for the Chetco. I have dry bags that perfectly fit these buckets and the dry bags aren't even dry bags. So I have like, cause very few dry bags are actually dry. Right. So, but if it's, if it's these gamma seal lid buckets inside a dry bag, it's that double layer protection is going to be great. Like the odds of your stuff actually getting wet are super low. If you just do the bucket, some water might get in there. But if you do the bucket in a dry bag, unless it's like a watershed bag, which they don't even probably have the size for this, you're set. I'd highly recommend this is a really affordable choice. I mean, the the gap these lids cost more than a bucket. Where if you get a bucket for like five bucks, but these lids are twelve. But yeah, I'm a huge fan of these. These are sweet. Uh, Chad, I filled mine with some from my garage. Some what? Some gasket i'm not sure what you're i'm not i'm i'm kind of slow chad you have to somebody's gonna have to help me out here maybe chatty help me out are you i think you're saying you filled the hole in your nrs gasket from with some gasket from a garage so yeah man craig great suggestion that those buckets with the gamma seal lids are sweet i mean the whole this is like what like 18 bucks for a pretty nice setup the, the reason I like the NRS boxes a little bit more is they're square and they just fit nicely and they have really nice tie down handles. And so I think the NRS dry boxes are going to be better. And I, dry, I say dry, that's in quotes. They're not actually dry. The NRS, I'm just going to call them NRS food storage boxes. Um, they're just square. The lid is really useful for if you're going lean and mean for like, if you turn the lid upside down, it's like a place to put dishes. Uh, it's the whole thing you can sit on. It's a seat for camp. I guess a bucket could be a seat for camp too, but like the NRS, if I had a choice, I'd get the NRS ones. But if I'm saving money, these gamma seal things are the bomb. And we use these gamma seal things for trash all the time. Um, so foam gasket. Cool. Yeah, you just fixed, you just fixed, yeah. You, you shouldn't have to fix NRS's stuff. Like you shouldn't have to, but good for you. Give NRS feedback and sure they would try to solve. Um, Jim, I'm not going to comment on that one. No comment. Let's move on. Let's move on. Okay. NRS or math, man, NRS is popular today. 
Hi, I like my NRS frame, but I've never been happy with the ornament attachment. Got dump truck last year, and during the event, the mount spun on the frame and got forced down and out. The two nuts on the U-bolt probably weren't tight enough. Well, that sounds like your fault a little bit. Uh, but but once back in the boat, while still in the canyon, I couldn't get the mount back upright to get control of the boat. Yep, this is common. Managed to eventually get into an eddy and go over things. No way mount could be brought back into position without tools. Have you heard of happiness about this? Have you heard of happiness before? Yes. Do you know of alternative mounts or solutions that work with NRS frames? No. So the quick answer is yes, I've heard of it happening. No, they're not alternative mounts. Although our friend, our friend at bettermounts.com is working on an alternative. And just like before I go on this, I just want to bring up better mounts. I just got one of their better mounts frames, bettermounts.com. So this is a good alternative for a, a lot of this NRS stuff. And I just bought four of these frames. These are the mounts are lighter, stronger. Uh, the little U-bolt thing here is thicker, so it holds better. Um, they have a seat mount design now that's really cool um, because you can let's see a photo. You can take the mount off without taking the seat off. So the NRS one, you have to take the seat off of the mount before you take the mount off. This one, you can leave the mount attached to the seat. So like he's just solving problems that we have left and right. And so when possible, I'd highly urge everybody to buy from better mounts so that he continues to make this stuff. Bimini mounts and solar panel brackets. These U-bolts are better. They're just wider so they get there's more friction. Uh, and they're, the crossbars, if you look at the crossbars, uh, you have an option, strongest or lightest. And so, you know, when I sit on uh, NRS frame, I'm, I'm 220 pounds. The back bar bat bows a little bit. It makes me feel like, you know, chubby. Like, I'm like, oh, man, that's a good reminder. I need to lose some weight, which is probably good, right? But, like, it, it also makes me insecure. I'm like, oh, it's a good reminder that I need to lose some weight. So I would say uh, that's a bummer, right? But if you look at these bars, he makes a stronger version. And that stronger version is strong and stiff. And so you can choose to have a strong bar that you sit on so it doesn't bend and make you insecure about the fact that you need to lose weight. And so, um, yeah, I highly recommend checking out bettermounts.com for some of this stuff. And I know he – I bring this up because I know he wants to make a new ore tower for NRS frames. Okay, with that, the question was about these things. So this is – this is this is the ore tower he's talking about, and it just it, it this thing and just basically go the the rail goes through here, and it usually works really well. It's simple, it's light. These NRS frames are great. I use I use them all the time. They're one of the eight things the NRS makes that are quality that are smart, and I I really I really like their system. Like it's easy for them to ship. It's easy for me to take it apart, and put it in an airplane. It's easy to adjust. I can move things really easily. There's a lot of reasons these NRS frames are really good. The reason that this isn't great uh, is, first of all, it depends on you tightening these nuts. And so you need some sort of tool to tighten the nuts. NRS will sell you this thing or give it to you. I don't know. And this thing works pretty well. But I, I really am not a fan of this because it's just like a weapon. And I'm with my hands are cold. I'm always wearing like, hurt myself so i carry with me let's see if i have it handy uh let's see maybe it's back here
Sorry, everyone. I can't find it. But I carry with me usually a ratchet with a deep half-inch socket in my PFD. So the problem is, getting back to the question is, if you flip, this is almost always going to hit something and turn out or turn in. And your boat's unrollable, right? It has to – if it gets moved and if it's still on there, your hands can't move it back. And so you flip the boat back over and you can't row that boat. You pretty much have to, at a minimum, carry this in your PFD. I carry the ratchet that I'm looking for. So, um, yeah, it's just a thing. So when you're rowing with the NRS stuff and you have on a river where if you flip and you reflip back over, you need your oar mass to be straight, you should be carrying this in your PFD so you can pull this out and get to work. I actually oh, – I don't have it on this one. But on one of these Makita tools, I even have like a, a thing. I do these so much because it tightens them down. So you can actually get like a – you're not going to carry this in your PFD, but having this put in to really tighten these things down is nice. That's how much I'm, I'm ratcheting these things down all the time. So I would say get this thing tight. Like you saying in your question uh, – oh, let's go back. You saying in your question or thing – once the boat, but can I, let's see, two nuts on the U-bolt. The two nuts on the U-bolt probably aren't tight enough. Yeah. You, it's your responsibility to tighten these nuts. Like, that's going to be a problem. But if you're worried about flipping and reflipping and not having this thing straight, carry a tool with you. You kind of have to. The Better Amounts guy, I think, is going to design this. Let me make myself big again. Is going to design this possibly with, we talked about this, with two of these side by side so first of all his little thingy here is thicker so it should be tighter because there's more friction i think that would matter for friction but it should right and it probably does but he's working on something that grabs better and we'll see what he comes up with he's super smart so yeah hopefully that answers that question um yeah i think that's it let's go back to the question make sure i got it all uh there's but there's no so there is no alternative mount right now, but bettermounts.com is hopefully coming up with something someday. Okay, Astro Blue Jacket nominal versus – sorry, let me re-say those words. Astro Blue Jacket nominal versus tested its flotation. Okay, I think I know what that means. Hi, thanks for all the stuff you put on YouTube and calling out the nonsense curvature of the pilot knife. Yeah, that – the NRS knives are not in the list of eight good things the NRS makes. About the flotation of the Astro Blue Jacket, which is not brilliant nominally. I'm not sure what that means. Not brilliant nominally. I think maybe the problem with me in this, the, all this is I don't know what the word nominal means. And so some of the vocabulary is tough for me in this question. Okay, mine is about six years old. And I've seen both salt and fresh water, all temperatures from freezing to hot over regular use. A year ago, I tried to come up with a reason to buy a new PFT and wanted to check the flotation of the oldish blue jacket. Strapped an eight kilogram kettlebell to it and put it into the water. It did not submerge completely, which would mean it has still had more about, well, probably more than 78 newtons of flotation. Lucky sample, excess margin of error in production. Would other 70 Newton nominally PFDs boast a real 90 Newton? I, I think they're pretty accurate. I don't think, I mean, I don't, I mean, I don't know what happened there. Are you sure it was an eight kilogram weight? Uh, my, my take, 
if you told me you and I haven't done the science, you're the only person who has even done anything close to a real test. If you told me you had an, a six-year-old astral blue jacket that's gotten a lot of use, I'd say time to replace. And if I remember right, 78 newtons. Let me I think 78 newtons is like 16 and a half pounds. 78 newtons, two pounds. 78 newtons is 17 and a half pounds. So I think it comes with 16 and a half pounds. It seems like you got an extra pound from six years of use. I doubt it. Um, is there something in your PFD that's adding flotation maybe? Like, do you have rope in there? I, who knows? Um, I have no idea. Patrick, I have no idea. I, I would love to get a bunch of PFDs and go to a pool and do this. I think we'd learn a ton. Um, so maybe I will, but thanks for sharing this. I have to answer your questions. I have no idea about this. Sorry for the terrible answer. Okay. Cool friends. Hey, uh, Zach been a GG member. I think GG is short for gear garage. I've been, a, it definitely is been a GG member for nigh on two years now. For those of you who don't know, a GG member means you pay a few bucks a month and you're a member and you get like a little, uh, thing next to your name, little thing. And then like, we were doing like trivia contests for members and we sometimes do members only shows. And I, I do the members only show when I have some video or some topic, I don't want to make public, which hasn't happened in a while. Like I have no, no topic. I don't want to make public. If I have some video of some like rescue, that's kind of, it just shouldn't get out there in the real world that goes to get garage members. And so the members show kind of depends on, Members only shows depend on me just seeing weird things in the real world, which hasn't happened lately. So yeah. Anyway, let's go on with the question. Uh, any chance you'd be welcoming more cool friends to your live show, at least members only broadcast. Yeah. I mean, I'm trying to do these cool friends shows. I think that's what you're referring to. I'm going to do one Thursday with Zach Kaufman from Sawyer, which is just me and a friend of mine who I think is cool. Just chit chatting. Um, and there's no, you know, it's just, Zach was available at four o'clock on Thursday. I'm available. And so we're doing one uh, just to check in. So yeah, we're doing that for sure. I really appreciate the days of Aaron, Steve, and all the thoughts that we as a live audience got to reflect on during your live discussions. I miss those days. Yeah, those were fun days. That was really fun. I also miss a day and a time I could depend on, which I could tune into for a lively live discussion on with River Masters. I work nights and would like to have a dependable afternoon or morning during which I could tune to listen sometime from you, Zach, and your cool friends. Any chance you all you all can nail down a reasonable-ish time for a live show? Yeah, like this show, 2 p.m. on Tuesdays. So um, so for context, for those of you that haven't watched the show lately, we used to do a Friday. This started with Aaron and Zach's video review show where we would review videos um, live on YouTube. And it was actually a lot of fun. And then that turned into Aaron and Zach's mediocre Friday show. So we'd, every Friday we do a show and that would be like two hours. And Aaron and I would debate all the time. I'd bring other friends on. And then we did it. Uh, then I kept getting questions like these questions over and over and over. And I was like, Hey, Aaron, we should do a, a, a question and answer show because I, these questions are probably more important than us re reviewing videos. And so we created the Tuesday live show, the Q and a show. And, uh, last year at some point, I just, I was kind of tired of doing the Friday show. Um, these shows are a lot of work. It takes, you know, when I, Aaron and I would usually go two hours, but it was like an hour of prep 
at least every time. And I was with two shows, I was putting six hours a week into the shows when I have like a job I should probably be focusing on. So I decided to just narrow it down to just answering questions. It's just me. And then once in a while, I'm going to do uh, these cool friend shows. Maybe that'll change down the road when I have more time. But for now, we're just going to stick with this, the, the Tuesday Q&A show. I'm doing my best to do them at Tuesday at 2 p.m., but my schedule doesn't always allow me to be available at Tuesday at 2 p.m. So that's our goal, but it's going to move around a little bit based on when I have time. And we're going to do very random, no schedule, cool friends show like we're doing on this Thursday. Okay. That's the last question. I want to move on. Um, and if anybody has questions, please like add them in the comment section. I'm happy to answer questions as we go. I just want to share some, some information. Uh, this is the lottery control calendar for the middle fork. So for those of you that don't know the middle fork of the salmon, the permits, the private permits are issued through a lottery that I think is you have to apply by January 31st. So you have two more weeks. And in general, there are four private launches and three commercial launches per day. And these tables are a little messed up because it didn't format very well. Um, so like the, anyway, the tables is not perfect, but I can tell you that blue thing with the four and sometimes there's a five, sometimes there's a three. That's, those are the number of private launches per day. The number next to it, which is usually three, but sometimes four or two is number of commercial launches per day. So private, private get more launches than commercials as a whole, right? By, you know, four to three on average. And sometimes the schedule gets moved around. That's why sometimes it's five and two or three and four. But they want to point out is um, the Forest Service lately has been rolling over permits. And so if you have a permit, let's say this, this July, and some act of nature closes the river, the Forest Service will allow you to roll that permit over the same date the following year. And this happened last year. Last year, there were landslides on the Middle Fork in August. And uh, they happened August 3rd. And so on August 4th, the river was closed for a while and a handful of people rolled over their permits the following year. And so if you look at the, at the column, the third column, the one you'll see in red, there's a zero private permit on the 4th, zero on the 10th, zero on the 11th, zero on the 13th. And the, in between there's some twos and ones. And so uh, what happens is those permits are already given away to people who had permits last year. So this is just a good reminder that if you are applying for permits in the Middle Fork, I probably wouldn't apply the first two weeks of August because there's and maybe you can, August 1st, 2nd, and 3rd, fine. I just, actually, there's only one. Oh, no, August 3rd, it looks like there's only one available. So August 1st or 2nd are fine, but I wouldn't go August 3rd through 13th because it's pretty unlikely you'll get a permit. And and they're and I think they did this with COVID. So a lot of people are you know frustrated. It's harder and harder to get a permit. Permits are so hard to get. Part of the reason is during COVID, permits got rolled over, and then there were landslides last year, 2022, two years ago. Those got rolled over last year, and now there's last year's ones getting rolled over. So there's fewer permits available to get because of all these rollovers because of Mother Nature, and so. Um, and this is a, I think a relatively new thing. Like the forest service didn't historically roll over permits like this. So there's just fewer available. Okay. So I want to talk about that. I think that's worth knowing about. And I, one other thing is 
I um, I'm an outfitter on the Middle Fork, and we have a Middle Fork Outfitters Association. The 25, I don't know, 26, 27 outfitters, we formed an association that represents the outfitters. And because we have an association, we're able to have meetings with the Forest Service. And so, like, if I as an individual outfitter want to meet with the Forest Service, they might meet with me. Um, but they would rather meet with an association that represents all of us. Same thing with private boaters. If you if you call the association and you wanted to, or sorry, the Forest Service and you wanted to have a meeting with them to hear everything and complain, they're probably not going to meet with one private boater, but they would meet with an association of private boaters. And so American Whitewater can do that because it's an association. I think in Idaho, the Idaho Whitewater Association exists. They could, they could come to meetings like this and get the latest information. So uh, I'm just saying this because I think sometimes private boaters think that as outfitters, we get to have secret meetings with the, with the agencies. And we have meetings with the agencies uh, because we're out there a lot and we care about what's going on. Uh, and we, we formed an association so we are able to meet with them. But there's no like secret business happening. These aren't nefarious meetings. We're not trying to like keep people off the river. We just want to share our thoughts as outfitters on how we can make the river better for everybody. And the Forest Service wants to communicate what's going on with them to make it better for everybody too. So these are constructive meetings. Sometimes there's there's disagreements, but they're they're we have them for the betterment of everybody. So I go to these meetings, and um, you know this one was like four hours long. I don't think we got one break in four hours. Um, it was pretty brutal, and we covered a lot of great topics. But I, these are some highlights of things that happened in the meeting. I just want to share with everybody, you know, so that you're you know like some things that we've talked about that I think that um, some things that apply to everybody. And, uh, you know, everybody probably knows that the put in and takeout launches in the middle fork, there's a lot of congestion and they're not the best launch sites. And so, you know, the middle fork outfitters have been asking for help with this, um, at boundary in particular, we've been asking them to put in a second ramp and it's a big ask, but just so everybody knows we're asking them just to help with congestion. There used to actually be a ramp up at dagger falls a long time ago. And that's one thing that's like, hey, how about putting that ramp back just so one group could go up there and launch just to help with the, all the congestion that haps, happens at the boundary ramp. I got to this year, I got to boundary and there was a private boater raft on the ramp, clogging everything up and nobody around associated with that raft. And so as cars are coming in, we're all backed up waiting for this one raft to get moved with nobody around it. It's, it's infuriating. You can imagine I walked up to, I, I basically, I wasn't going to just move the raft, which I'm temp was tempted to do because it's kind of rude. to Just leave your raft at the top of the ramp. Um, I went up, I found them in their campsite said, Hey, could you guys, could you guys, can we please move your raft? And they got super grumpy with me. Don't touch our raft. I'm like, okay, well, could you do us a favor and move it so that like all the cars that have showed up can use the ramp. And so there's a congestion problem. There. That's just a way of saying there's a congestion problem there. And not everybody is as respectful of each other's of the, of the space. Same thing with the cash bar, the takeout. Um, and I learned that there's actually, you know, we're always like, Hey, can we add more pavement? Can we add more sites? Um, in the meeting, we learned that there's actually a lot of uh, like archeological sites there. And so it's really hard to do anything actually, because there's so many archeological sites 
there, which makes sense because it's like a place you would want to live um, back then. So I, yeah, it's very just difficult, difficult to do anything. Um, but the suggestion I think that I would suggest to people, like most outfitters arrive between 10 and noon on the last day. I would, like we, we're just on a schedule. We just do it. And so that's just when we arrive. I would suggest arriving not between 10 and noon. Um, and like even at like after one or two, the ramp is so quiet. The problem is when everybody decides to arrive at the exact same time, it's just like it's a mess. And so I'm not telling you when to get to take out. I'm just saying, you know, we, you know, maybe, maybe consider arriving in a different two hour period than that particular one. And don't get mad at me. I'm not telling you what to do. I'm just saying if you want to be around less anxiety and anger and congestion and and just craziness, consider just a little bit later. Just, just a suggestion. Okay. The other thing is, in the management plan, uh, there's a rules that say that a rule. There's like regulations, I guess is the right word for it, uh, that say that 45% of the campsites on the middle fork need to be below Frizzell class four, and 7% need to be below Frizzell class five. And Frizzell, what Frizzell is, is a, it's a rating system for campsites that says like how how bad they are, like how how used they are. You know, in a wilderness area like the Frank Church River of No Return Wilderness, ideally the campsites are in fairly natural state, right? If we start kind of just overusing and beating up the campsites, that that kind of degrades the wilderness feel uh, that's intended by a wilderness area. And so uh, class four is, is in pretty bad shape. Class five is in really bad shape. So for those of you that know the Middle Fork, like Hospital Bar is probably one of them that's class five uh Wolder's probably one that's class five and as soon as we go through these barriers they have to start closing camps which there's already a lot of pressure on camps in the middle fork as it is if they were to close like Wollard and hospital bar for example or some other camps it would put more use on the ones that we're already using um, like gra the grassy ones probably class five um and so this is the frizzell is just a rating i think some guy's last name is frizzell invented it like in the 70s i don't i'm just that's why I kind of remember. I'm not sure that's exactly what it was. Um, and and um, a Forest Service person just shows up and they fill out a form based on what they see, and then it gets a rating. And we've been keeping the camp the we've been keeping them below these numbers for quite a while, but we're starting to creep up on these numbers, which means closing of camps. And just to make everybody aware, like things that that increase the frizzle rating are like like trails in camps that go places, like a lot of little trails, like. That people get from just walking all over camps, um, dead and down wood. And I, that, by that, I mean, there's none. And so if you pick every piece of firewood away from a campsite and every piece of little wood, that high, that raises the Brazil rating. It makes us less likely to camp there in the future. And so we want to be leaving wood in our campsites, not a pile of it, like it's firewood, but spread out everywhere. That's a, that's a place in its natural state. Um, exposed wood. I forget what that means. Um, a riverbank erosion, like we pull in the camp and we keep beating at the riverbank. That's not natural. That adds to the result rating and just vegetation. The less plants there are, the, you know, the, the worse it is. So we want to keep vegetation. So I would just, um, make the point that like, we should be trying to be respectful of the camps, um, minimizing the, us just walking all over them, leave wood behind. That'll help us continue to have these camps help 
lower the Frizzell ratings of the camps. So based on the, the management plan, we can keep camping there. Um, and then finally, on the Boundary Road, a ton of work was done. There was a bunch of, the Forest Service got a bunch of money from, I forget the name of the act, spacing on it. Um, I think it happened during the Trump era. They passed the Great American Outdoors Act, I believe. And so we, a lot of work's been done, actually. It's stuff we want to do for a long time. And one of them is working on the boundary road, um, just making the boundary road better. They did a lot of work on it last year and putting in culverts and just improving it. And it's in a fragile state right now because of the work done. And so we were just told that, like, you know, driving in, like, when the road's muddy, or going in and clearing the snow by hand is gonna could make the road worse. And so just out of respect for the work that was done, I think the Forest Service wanted us to like not go in May 27th, the day the roads may be passable. Like let's try to wait till the road dries out a little bit. Again, I'm not telling everybody what to do. I'm just passing on, like, you know, to respect the work that has been done to make that road better and to make the experience better for everybody who use that road all summer long. Maybe this year we don't try to drive in as, as soon as we possibly can. So anyway, those are some some things um, I want to pass on. I mean, we talked about a lot more stuff. Again, if like as a private boater, you want to meet with the Forest Service, you probably won't get a meeting because they're just busy. The way I won't as just an individual outfitter won't get a meeting. But having associations, that that can allow the association to have a meeting. So if like, I don't want to create more work for the Forest Service, and they might get mad at me for saying this, but they probably won't. But if there is an association that represents boaters, um, it's a good idea to have have these meetings with the agencies, whether it's on the Middle Fork, the Rogue, somewhere else, and then help share your concerns with them. You know, there's I'm sure as private boaters, you're concerned about put-ins and takeouts and and you know trash on rivers and other things. It gives you to express your feelings as a group. You can, you know, like you could do some sort of voting and say, what are the biggest issues we see on the road or whatever river? And then the association can bring those to the Forest Service. At the same time, the Forest Service can communicate things they're working on. And you could, and as an association, communicate to all the members. That's, it's an effective way to reach a lot of people at once. So I would, I would encourage the associations, associations that exist to try to have, attend these meetings or have these meetings with agency members. Or if you live in an area where there's associations don't exist, create one, create like the Southern Oregon boating association or the middle fork boating association. Now you have to have members. You can't just have an association with two members. You have to be like, Hey, we have a hundred members. So a middle fork boating association is probably not going to like bring in a hundred members. Maybe it will. I don't know. But you have, you know, you go to these agencies, say, hey, we're with this association. We represent voters of these type. We have this many members. And they'll be like, oh, cool. That's a good meeting for us to have. And it's fair, right? If you meet with just one person, it's not always fair. Where if you can, if when, when an agency can meet with like, like a group of people, like an, uh, an, a group that represents people, that's a more fair representation. Hopefully that makes sense. Hopefully that's all correct. That's my take on how it all works. So, with, there's no more questions. If you guys do have any more questions, um, I will maybe do – I'll probably do a show next week, although I'm out of town. Uh, I will do my best to do a show. It probably won't be Tuesday at 2 p.m. I'll do my best to do it as close to Tuesday at 2, 
2 p.m. as I can. But uh, next week we'll probably have a show. If not, I'll see you all in a couple weeks. Uh, thank you all for watching. Thank you all for being members. Thank you all for supporting the show. Thanks for watching. Thanks for liking. And thanks for subscribing. I'm so close to 12,000 subscribers, so I'm pretty jazzed on that. And, yeah, hopefully I'll see you all next week. Thank you.